This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, I'm Chris Warburton and this is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. Episode 5, Christmas in Jail. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. In Durham, North Carolina. On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. In the days after Kathleen Peterson's death on the back staircase of their mansion in Cedar Street, Durham, her husband Michael is increasingly under suspicion of having murdered her. Behind a carefully choreographed storybook facade lies a darker world where even our own loved ones may not be who we think they are. In Aphrodite Jones's true crime series on the Discovery Channel, she spoke to Art Holland, the chief investigator for the Durham PD. When you got to Peterson's house, what was going on there? When I first approached the house, uh, the ambulances were still in the driveway. There was a fire truck in the driveway. And most of the police personnel were situated outside. There was a time when a medical examiner by the name of Kenneth Snell came in, and he actually wrote a report saying that Kathleen Peterson's death was, quote, due to the fall down the stairs. He decided he'd just come by the scene and take a look at it. And, and I was standing right there when he just did a, an exterior examination of, of Mrs. Peterson's head. And, and you could see, uh, you know, a few lacerations, but he couldn't rule out a fall at the time. But until they do a more extensive, thorough exam, we really won't know what the cause of death was. You're a seasoned detective homicide investigator for many years. Is there any doubt in your mind the minute you walked in that door and you saw that stairwell as to what happened? Because of the volume of, of blood and, and the other items that were situated around her body, you had bath towels, you had paper towels, you had Michael Peterson's shoes, you had Michael Peterson's socks. I mean, that right there brings up a red flag. You know, why, if a man just found his wife deceased at the foot of the steps, why would he even think about taking his socks and shoes off unless he was trying to clean the crime scene up. And, you know, that was kind of obvious at the time that something something wasn't right. And I explained to him that his wife's death was suspicious, that we needed to investigate it further, and that because of the circumstances that I would have to be obtaining a, a search warrant. I wasn't pointing my fingers at him at the time. I just knew that the scene needed to be processed so we could determine how she how she died. And how did he react to that? He was quiet. It was like he, he was speechless. And was kind of like shocked that we were going to process his house as a crime scene. 1810 Cedar was a crime scene from the moment the investigators arrived. Years later, Michael Peterson spoke to Aphrodite about that time. I know it's difficult, but I, I have to ask you about that night and what happened. Okay. Well, we had sex, she took a bath, we came downstairs, she started to cook. It was a, uh, a pasta thing in the kitchen, and then we, you know, went into the family room, watched the movie, and then the movie ends, and then we go into the kitchen with our wine glasses. And when you walk into the kitchen, there's the phone and it has an answering machine, and it was blinking. Uh, so I picked it up and I listened, and it was a message for Kathleen that she had a conference call in the morning. 
On December the 13th, 2001, Kathleen Peterson's funeral took place at Duke Chapel and she was laid to rest in Section 3 of the vast Maplewood Cemetery. Now, I'm looking at a very well-known picture of Michael leaving the service. He's got a yellow shirt and tie on, being comforted on one side by his son, Todd, who is wearing a white carnation buttonhole. Michael is tightly holding hands with Veronica Hunt, Kathleen's mother, and she is flanked by her granddaughter, Caitlin. Behind them, both looking stunned, are the Ratliff girls. Meanwhile, investigators are beginning to put together a theory that Michael killed Kathleen. There was some blood on the inside of the door, a drop that looks like it had was rolling down the door and it was like somebody had, had touched it and smeared it. That's what happened. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that the, the murder weapon went out, went out that door. But nowhere, no how could you find it? We could not find the murder weapon. Michael is still arguing that he and his wife had had a few drinks. The question of how much they liked to drop was to become a key issue in the case. Was Kathleen drunk? Was that why she fell down the stairs? Aphrodite Jones asked him during her true crime doc on Discovery. We did a lot of drinking, and that's, that's true. So you enjoyed socialising? Oh, loved it. To be honest, Kathleen and I would find almost anything to celebrate about. We drank an awful lot of champagne. It was about our favourite thing to drink. So sometimes we would go and buy... Oh my lord! We'd go buy uh, we'd go buy wedding cakes sometimes at the break, uh, and we'd come back and we'd celebrate all the time. It later emerged that Kathleen's blood alcohol level was 0.08, which in North Carolina means she would have been legally able to drive. So not drunk then. Dwayne Diva, remember the name? You'll be hearing a lot more about him. Was a bloodstain expert working at the State Bureau of Investigation. A long distance from where this cabinet was. There was an open bottle of wine, and then there was a smudged or used wine glass with wine in the glass. That got my curiosity up more. Uh, in the bar sink was a pot of pasta, and I simply picked the pot of pasta up and looked down in the sink and smelled the, the smell of alcohol. And, uh, and when I looked around, I said, hmm, this does not look right. So Michael Peterson, in most likelihood, went, got two wine glasses, put wine in, poured the rest of the wine down the sink to make it appear that she had been drinking more than she had. Someone did something. So there's a suggestion that the wine bottle and glasses had been deliberately put out to suggest to investigators that a lot of drinking had gone on. Art Holland's team also used a chemical known as luminol. It shows up evidence of a cleanup. Once you spray it on there, if there's blood present, it, it reacts. And when we did that, we saw footprints leading from the stairwell to the washing machine. Then the footprints went back to the kitchen area, to the sinks in the kitchen. I mean, there were just so many indicators of, of a cleanup. Michael is still talking about a conspiracy against him. He says what happened is simple. One of the things Michael claimed is that the police, the Durham police and the DA's office, was after him and that they had an axe to grind with him because he had written a series of columns for the Herald Sun here in Durham attacking the police department, attacking the ability of the police department to control gangs and violence in the streets. Mm -hmm. For him to say that it was a conspiracy that the city was after him, that crime scene was mine. And I didn't care if it was the governor, the, the mayor, uh, whoever lived in that house would have gone through the same thing that he went through. Michael was really a, a, a pillar of the community in many ways. And you can 
say, oh, he was just set up, it was rigged against him. But you know, when police officers and detectives go into a scene of a person who has celebrity in that jurisdiction, they are double careful. They know that it's possible it will turn into a political issue. And they start out taking extreme care from the very beginning. They weren't fooling around. They weren't stacking the deck against him. And then I went in the house uh, and when I, in the back porch, the kitchen, there was a sort of a sink area there and her glass was there. And uh, you know, I put mine down and then I was walking around to go lock you know, the house up. And then as you go around, there's this back staircase. And she was lying in the back staircase. And that's, well, that's what everything both begins and ends. Do police make mistakes? Yes. Do police not remember things? Yes. Do police sometimes get it wrong? Yes. Do police or prosecutors sometimes break the law themselves? Do things they shouldn't do? Yes. But in this case, the reason they thought Michael Peterson did it is because they were staying in his house with his wife at the bottom of the stairs with thousands of blood dots on the wall. And he rushes up and grabs her right in front of the police and gets blood all over his body. So the reason they thought he did it is because that's usually who did it when you walk into a scene like that. So there's a lot of blood. Kathleen wasn't drunk. There is evidence of a cleanup. An autopsy shows marks on Kathleen's skull, which prosecutors say is not consistent with the fall down the stairs. There are issues over the timings. How long was Michael still at the poolside before he discovered his wife? A week after Kathleen's funeral, Michael Peterson is charged with the murder of his wife and is remanded in custody. He spends one night in a jail cell. There is a picture of him about to go into his cell. A warder is checking in a pair of trainers and a copy of the Bible. Peterson sits awkwardly in a jacket. He's wearing loafers, white socks. The following day, the court decides not to grant Michael Peterson bail. I would never have done anything to hurt her. I am innocent of these charges and we will prove it in court. Caitlin, Kathleen's daughter, talks to the press as well. As far as I'm concerned, this is just, my mother would just be absolutely appalled and this is the last thing that she would have ever, ever wanted to happen to her husband. So Michael spends Christmas 2001 in jail. A number of neighbors and myself organized and went down to picket down at the police station because we didn't believe Michael could have done it. And here his children were all coming home for Christmas and nobody would have been in the house. And so we were asking uh, the police department if they just wouldn't let him go free. He did get out, but he didn't get out, I don't think, until a couple days after Christmas, or the 26th or 27th. The following two years, I believe Michael couldn't have done it, just knowing him as a person. And um, I supported him, and we went out to dinner, had him here for dinner, and uh, went out to other people's houses. And everyone in town, or a number of people, large percentage, believed that he must have done it. And I said, not Michael. 
He is released on bail eventually and spends 2002 preparing for his trial, accompanied by his loyal family and a French film crew, determined to clear his name. Kathleen was my life. I whispered her name in my heart a thousand times. She is there, but I can't stop crying. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt in Durham, North Carolina on BBC Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. Michael Peterson has spent the whole of 2002 preparing for his trial. So have the DA and his team. They believe Kathleen Peterson's death was no accident. In the build-up to the murder trial of Michael Peterson, everyone in Durham seems to have a theory. You couldn't go to a social gathering without people talking about Kathleen's murder and Michael. And that's Paul, one of the Petersons' friends who lived in the same neighbourhood. While it did get a little tedious after a while, it was also a way of somehow trying to come to grips with the whole event. Fairly quickly, people came to one side or the other. You know, Michael did it, Michael didn't do it. Now, more than one guest on this podcast has said this case reads like a novel or plays out like a movie. Here's Durham newspaper columnist Tom Gasparoli, or Gaspo, to you and I. You have a flamboyant defence attorney in there. You have a ultra-flamboyant defendant. You have a victim who is pretty well known. And you have the heavy hitters from the prosecutor's office in front of you. The trial was beginning amid an avalanche of publicity. The core issues are simple, but everything else about this case isn't. In a very real sense, this case is about pretense and appearances. Kathleen Peterson's autopsy results and photos had already been released to the public, showing she had at least seven deep cuts to the back of her head and bruises on her hands, arms and face. That autopsy report was enough for Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, to decide that she could no longer believe that Michael was innocent, as she told Aphrodite Jones in her true crime series for the Discovery Channel. The autopsy report convinced me that she was in fact murdered. There was absolutely no question in my mind after reading that. This was a blow for Michael and the appearance to the outside world that his family were united behind him. To this day, Caitlin believes Michael killed her mother. Here's Michael himself talking to Aphrodite on that very point. Yes, Caitlin changed her mind, but to me, I cannot believe that deep down, Caitlin really believes I hurt her mother. She knew it better than that. She knew us too well. She never saw us fight. She never saw anything. She never knew anything but love and happiness and fun. By now, Michael Peterson's name was known not just in Durham, but in all corners of America. Such was the media frenzy around the trial. So, the perfect stage for a defence attorney who loves putting on a show. David Rudolph is tough as nails. He loves the media. He loves uh, putting on a show in the courtroom. That's TV reporter Julia Sims from WRAL, the local NBC affiliate, who has followed the case from the start. And he's very good. He is very good. Very detail-oriented, and um, he's a very hard-nosed attorney, I think is how you would describe him. Ask pretty much anyone to describe Michael Peterson's defense attorney, David Rudolph, and the word showman will come up sooner or later. And he's also a showman. Showman. He he is very good at 
having an audience and capturing an audience. It's worth noting that he's done a lot of defense work for the wrongly convicted and fought for the underdog for a lot of his professional life. A man whose heart is in the right place then. You've got a man that loves to hear himself talk, that loves to show how smart he is. Gaspo again. And wouldn't mind showing up this kind of small southern town of Durham. What's going on in Durham? I'm David Rudolph. And he was arrogant at every turn. He pronounced his client to be a pillar of ethics and a pillar of the community. And he just wasn't going to have it. We're used to strong opinions from Tom Gasparoli by now. So what about author and true crime TV presenter Aphrodite Jones? I do not like David Rudolph. Never did. Right. So uh, he has no morals. He has no moral compass. And, you know, there's a thing I've learned, which is you get the lawyer that you deserve. And I think Michael Peterson got the lawyer he deserved. So in Michael Peterson's corner, we have a whip-smart showman who loves the media attention. Yeah, now my name is David Rudolph, uh, and I'm a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer, uh, now practicing in Charlotte, North Carolina. But back uh, in 2001, when the case began, uh, I was practicing in Durham. We went to the Chapel Hill office of David Rudolph. He was generous with his time and help. And on his website, David says he relishes fighting for the individual against the power of the state or big business. He was educated at Rutgers, the London School of Economics and NYU. He's won several awards and has spent the last 20 years in the list of best lawyers in America. When this all started, Caitlin, Kathleen's daughter, was a staunch supporter of Michael's. And she gave a, a statement at, a, at, a, at the jail the night he was arrested which was very strongly supportive. Over the next month or two, they worked on her and they turned her around. And as a result, where there was a a group of five children who were all very close, there's now four children, you know, Michael's two sons and, and then Liz Ratliff's two daughters who are still very close and supportive of Michael. And then there's Caitlin, who was part of that whole cohort and has not had any contact with them in the last 15 years. I'm sorry. So while David answers his phone, his position is clear. The prosecution turned Caitlin. Who are the main players in the prosecution then? These are two men that couldn't be more different. You know, Jim Harden is a man of character, is a man of conviction. This is somebody who is doing his job for the sake of justice. Jim Harden, the district attorney. Serious, no-nonsense, now a judge. He didn't try a lot of cases these days. He was management. You know, he has a military background, so he's very sharp and very methodical and not a lot of drama. Here's Julia Sims from WRAL. Some people would say sort of like a Boy Scout. Very, tries to do everything right and by the book. Jim Hardin, not just a top lawyer, but also, as Julia said, a man with a military background. On his own website, he points out, I was mobilised with 18th Airborne Corps during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and with 3rd Army US Central Command during Operation Iraqi Freedom. I currently serve as a colonel in the Army Reserve. He's very soft-spoken, but uh, prominent and strong in appearance, sure of his convictions, a southern uh, young man, born and raised, and he's unflappable. Is he the most strategic, creative thinker on his feet in the courtroom? 
Not really. You had Freda Black for some of the theater that was needed. Jim Harden isn't going to get involved in a case like this unless it's an important case. He wants his people to do their jobs and do it well. And he also was ready to take the heat one way or the other. He said, I'm in this. I'm going to help try this. And we're going to get a conviction. As Gaspo says, Freda Black was there for the theater. She's Jim Harden's assistant. She served as assistant prosecutor for many years. She was well known in Durham as a tough and uncompromising prosecutor who worked on a lot of high profile cases. She also took on pro bono cases for poor people who couldn't afford representation. Well, I personally believe that he gave the, inter- the interviews to obtain name recognition. I had name recognition already in this community because I did a nationally televised case, the Michael Peterson case, back in 2003. I believe he did it so that people would know his name. People referred to them as fire and ice. And she was the fire and he was the ice. Julia Sims from WRAL again. And she is like was like a peacock strutting around in that courtroom. The color, the vibrancy, the language, everything was over the top. She was an interesting presence in court, right? (laughs) Well, that's one way to put it. Tom Gasparoli. If you want to get a feel for a strong Southern woman, a bright Southern woman, a fighter, a combative prosecutor with a strong Southern accent, it's Freda Black. Frankly, when she stood up and said her piece in her own unique style, that's how she talked. She was the same person in the hallway or in her office as she was in the courtroom. And she wasn't putting on a show. That's Freda Black. She's got some lines, and she delivered them. And she's got some outrage, and she delivered that. And she was critical to the case, I think, because... There are people who seem to put on a show and you doubt them, like Peterson, like Rudolph, in my opinion. But Freda Black, I think you can see right through what she's saying is what she thinks, and she doesn't really care if you like her or not. She doesn't care if you like her hair or not. She doesn't care if you like her dress or not. She's there to prosecute a case. Let's do it. So what about the man charged with holding the trial together? Judge Orlando Frank Hudson a man who arrived in Durham as deputy DA in 1983 with five years' practice behind him. North Carolina educated, considered to be cool under pressure, fair and thorough, a champion of equality for African Americans. Now, he was a man under close scrutiny, but a man who gave little away. He was also set to face some big legal calls in the months to come. Here's Julia and then Tom. Judge Orlando Hudson um, is considered a very fair judge, a very laid-back judge. And I don't think a lot of judges could have handled this case and this trial as well as he did. He gave them a lot of latitude in the courtroom. I have always seen him as a really bright man who really likes his job, who thinks his job is important, who in fact, as I think pretty much anybody in the justice system should do, wants to make sure uh, the little guy and the little people, so to speak, get heard. He believes justice has nothing to do with money, but it has to do with evidence. So the stage is set, but the case needs a jury. Here's a WRAL report from The Time, May 2003. Durham, North Carolina. It's one of the highest profile cases in the Triangle, 
And Monday, lawyers on both sides of the Mike Peterson murder case begin what could be an exhausting search for 12 impartial jurors. The odds of finding someone who hasn't heard about the trial could be pretty slim, considering how the story has been in the media for 17 months. Almost immediately after Kathleen Peterson's death in December of 2001, Mike Peterson has become a household name in the triangle. That means potential jurors will be picked very carefully. They'll have to fill out a 100-question survey, asking them what they heard about the case and how they heard it. They'll also be asked about everything, from their background to their views on homosexuality. That report speculated that it might take two weeks to find a jury. It took seven to find the four men and eight women to hear the case. At one stage, Judge Orlando Hudson intervened. Judge Orlando Hudson was so frustrated with the slow pace of jury selection in the Mike Peterson murder trial Thursday that he interviewed a potential juror in court. Hudson first asked the potential juror if she already had an opinion in the case. When she responded yes, she was dismissed. The whole process took about 90 seconds. The prosecution and defence attorneys have been averaging about an hour with their questioning. Well, Michael's a, he, he's a little bit odd uh, in the sense that he's, uh, you know, he's a northerner. David Rudolph is ready to argue that Kathleen Peterson was discovered dead at the foot of a staircase after a tragic accident. But he has concerns about how his client might be perceived by the jury as a supposed outsider, a wealthy society man. He's very different than a lot of the people who grew up down here. Uh, I grew up in the north, uh, so I understand his sensibility Uh, I understand his sense of humor, his sarcasm, uh, you know, those sorts of things that perhaps the people down here uh, don't really understand. Uh, Nobody thought of him as an outsider. Tom Gasparoli doesn't agree. He was a columnist in the Bull City. He doesn't have a New York accent. He's just a guy in Durham who, you know, moved here like a lot of people. David Rudolph was the guy that was worried about how they would perceive David Rudolph. The jury will hear no less than 63 days' worth of evidence and argument before reaching their verdict. What happened in that stairway on December 9th was a tragic accident. Next time, sex, lies and videotape. The defendant says that Kathleen Peterson's death was caused by a tragic, accidental fall downstairs in their home. And we say, on the other hand, that she died a horrible painful death at the hands of her husband, Michael Peterson. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. In Durham, North Carolina. On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. Beyond Reasonable Doubt is a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 5 Live.